Hello and welcome in to BTN's Take 10 Podcast. This is Alex from BTN.com, and I know you all are as excited to hear it as I am to say it. Football season is officially here. That is right, everyone. College football, just like Kirby Enthusiasm and the McRib, it is back. And that means it's crazy town this time of year here at BTN. Uh, we've got all kinds of th- exciting things going on at the studio. Everyone's running around in a good mood as the 2017 football season gets underway. And that includes the celebration of the 10-year anniversary of our network. That's right. BTN went on the air for the first time 10 years ago on August 30th, 2007. And so we're doing all kinds of commemoration specials as a network. Those will air both on TV and digital platforms throughout the fall. So definitely be on the lookout for that as you uh, get to really live some fun moments with us that happened in the last decade. And the BTN Take 10 podcast is doing its part as well, as this will be the official 10-year anniversary podcast episode. And if you look back, we've had pretty much nothing but special edition episodes of the Take 10 podcast in the last month or so, going all the way back to Big Ten Media Days and through the BTN bus tour, and now on to the 10th anniversary episode. So we have some very exciting things planned for the show once we get into football season as well, and uh, those plans should be revealed very soon. So, to catch up on everything we've done and to stay up to date on what's ahead here on the show, this is my weekly reminder to you all to subscribe to BTN's Take 10 podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Google Play, and to continue to rate and comment on the show as we move ahead here into one of the most exciting times of year, football season. But uh, for this episode, for the special anniversary edition, I talked to the man who has literally been here at BTN since the beginning. As you probably know, Dave Revson is BTN's lead studio host, and his words were the very first actually to air on the network 10 years ago, almost to the day. And I sat down with Dave during one of our BTN bus tour stops in the middle of August, and he reflected on not only the last 10 years of the network, but on his life and his path to where he is today as well. And it was a uh, very enlightening discussion for me personally, um, just a just a good time sitting down with him and picking his brain. And I think you'll enjoy the insight Dave had to share as we look back and uh, kind of all celebrate how far the network has come and, and look ahead to the future of BTN. So here it is. Let's get into it. It's the Take 10 podcast discussion with Dave Revson. I'm very excited to be joined on the road uh, during the BTN bus tour stop in Ypsilanti, Michigan, just outside Ann Arbor, by the lead studio host of Big Ten Network. It's Dave Revson. Dave, thanks for uh, taking a break from the grind of the bus tour to sit down with me here today. My pleasure, Alex. Excited uh, to talk to you. Yeah, and uh, just starting off a little bit on the bus tour. It's been a ton of fun for me so far. It's been my first one. Right. It's old hat for you now, uh, but no one's at each other's throats yet on the bus, so uh, at least that I know of, so that's got to be a good sign, right? No one's... Yeah, it's been great. I, I don't want to, we'll knock on uh, whatever material this is here. Um, so far, so good, right? It's been a really easy tour and I enjoy it. I hope you're having fun. You know, to me, it's a great way to get into the season because you get into it right into the deep end. You get thrown into the deep end. You get to go see every team. Uh, for me, it's incredible in terms of um, the backstories for teams and kind of being fully prepared for the season. There's no substitute for watching a team practice, for talking to the coaches, talking to the players to get the real story. And you know, I've always felt like our universe is so small and we have 14 teams 
that we need to know our teams so much better than anyone else knows them. And, yeah. and I don't say that in any way out of disrespect for other networks or other outlets that cover them. But it's just a simple matter of the math, right? Sure. We ought to be able to know them better. And so something like this, I think, just gives us such a leg up and an ability to really understand the dynamics that are at play with a team. Agreed. And it is unique, I think, in, in college sports to be able to do this as a network. You know, you don't see this being done really anywhere else. Um, but just shifting gears a little bit, this is an episode of, of the podcast that I'm putting out for the 10-year anniversary of the Big Ten Network. And there's no better person to talk to about the 10-year anniversary than yourself because you started 10 years ago when the network went in the, on the air. So we'll get into uh, your personal path to BTN in a little bit. But first of all, I just want to ask in a broader sense, can you believe it's been 10 years since this thing got off the ground? You know, it's funny. Uh, to me, it does. It is crazy to think about. You know, I mean, I just relate it to my kids. And we moved here and my oldest kid was going into kindergarten and now she's going to be a sophomore in high school. Right. And our twins were in preschool, and now they're going into seventh grade. So stuff like that just boggles the mind. It's funny, I was speaking to a friend of mine, though, who is an avid BTN watcher, is a Big Ten graduate. And I said to him exactly what you just said to me, Alex. I said, can you believe it's been 10 years? And his response was, I can't believe it's only been 10 years because it's such a part of my college sports viewing habits now that it's so ingrained in oh the games on btn or what's on btn right now that i can't remember life without it and so that is pretty cool because you know it was a little bit of a rocky start no doubt and to think now that we're at the point where everyone just thinks of btn as kind of having always been there and and a part of their viewing is is pretty neat that's a good point for me i mean i i see it as a staple of me growing up being a college sports fan so you're right. I can't really remember a time without it. I guess like growing up, seeing on the local channels, you know, they would pick up your local games, but you couldn't really watch other teams like you can today. Um, so when, when BTN went live, that first edition of, of Big Ten Tonight, coming up on exactly 10 years ago now, uh, you opened with a quote, you're the first one to appear on camera, and it's, it's now on the wall at our studio. So um, I walk by it every day when I go into work, and so, do, so does everyone else that works there. So two questions on that quote. One... Did you write it yourself? And two, can you recite the first line so the fans know what I'm talking about? Uh, I don't know it by heart, but it is something to the effect of uh, 11 schools, 252 varsity teams, one great network to cover it all. Welcome to the Big Ten Network, your home for the passion. What is it? I think the first (laughs) sentence is all I had down in my head, so I think think you you nailed it there. Uh, There's there's a few other... uh, the passion, the games, and something else of uh, the nation's foremost athletic conference. That's it. Yeah. that. So you uh, you so, opened on that set with uh, Jared Dinardo and Howard Griffith, who yes, are on the tour with us. So you right. guys have been together since the very beginning. We have been. Yeah. So to answer your question on writing it, uh, it's funny. Um, so when I got hired, you know, I was the first on-air hire that, that was announced. And Teddy Greenstein from the Tribune had kind of been all over the story. And it wasn't a very well-kept secret that they were kind of recruiting me and Mm -hmm. trying to close a deal. And so when the deal closed, we, you know, when it was announced, we talked the next day. And Teddy said to me, have you thought about what your first line on the network's going to be? What your quote's going to be? And I hadn't given it any thought. It hadn't even occurred to me that I would be the first one to speak on the network. No one had told me that. Mm -hmm. I mean, as it turned out, it became apparent when I got there and we started talking about the first day that I was going to speak the first words. And so management 
a couple of the management people, Mark Silverman in particular, the, the president of the network, said, give it some thought and you know, come up with something good. I said, do you want me to toss it by you first? He said, no, I trust you. You'll do something good. So uh, I had a few things that I played around with. Part of, the, uh, part of that quote, the back end of it, was from kind of a quasi-mission statement that we worked on in Quentin Carter's office. Quentin, of course, is still right. at BTN. He was our original coordinating producer and, and now has moved up with this title as, as a vice president. But um, so some of it was borrowed from that. But then I, I just kind of played around with a bunch of stuff. I mean, I remember spending really an entire day on it where you think about two sentences. Um, but it, it, I really wanted to get it right. And I wanted to, to say something that I felt reflected the network and, again, the passion of the fans and the history of the of the conference. And so I feel good about it. It is very cool that it is up there. I'm not going to lie. That's new. I mean, that's within the last three or four years, I think. Okay. And it, when I first saw it, I really did a double take. I was like, wow, that is really neat. And, and it is kind of a, that it'll, well, that it's there, that it's, it's permanent. I, I think one of the things about this business is that you don't, get that many opportunities to kind of have something that you really have pure ownership of. Right. And I think for all of us who started at BTN at the very beginning, there's this pride of ownership of, of we started it, and that's really neat. So do you ever go back and, and just kind of watch that old footage from the early days and kind of marvel at the differences and how far you guys have come really in, the, in those 10 years? A little bit. I mean, I've watched some of this stuff, but uh, not a ton of it. And, and I, I do feel like it, we've improved as a network. Um, but one of the things that we were really fortunate with was because of when the network launched, it launched all in HD. And this is a point where a lot of networks were transitioning to HD. There was a lot of stuff that was still in SD. And so for us to launch as a fully HD network, A, was a great decision. And B, I think that stuff looks less dated than it would have otherwise. Right because of, of that HD component of it. So I'm proud of what we did really from the word go. I think the studio looks better now than it did then. The set looks better, but... Same can be said of any you know studio. Yeah, exactly, right, no doubt. I mean, I, I don't think that it was... It was nice when we launched it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was one thing that really I felt proud about from the very beginning was I thought our look was really good. Sure, and the network, as people remember, caught a huge break with the Michigan-Appalachian State game being the first game to air... On the network, and that was at a time when you know cable agreements were up in the air. BTN wasn't really a a much less a nationwide brand, but a, even a brand that might be recognized by your casual Big Ten fan. So when that game happened, Michigan was upset here in uh, Ann Arbor. What was the reaction of you guys on the ground? And, and just give me a sense of how significant that was for BTN's brand to be out there. Well, here's what I would say, Alex. I mean, there's so many components to that story because. It's two days after we launch. Mm -hmm. So we launch on August 30th. The game is September 1st. It was the first time we had ever done a pregame show. It was the first time we had ever done a halftime. It was the first time we had really gone through a rundown like that as a group and, and put a, a day together. I was working with an analyst in Jerry, who I'd worked with for two years at ESPN as part of ESPN Radio College Game Day, but we had never really done TV together. I had never worked with Howard. The producers were totally unfamiliar. The studio was unfamiliar. Where's the wide shot camera? Where, All of those things. The terminology was different. I always use this as an example, but the guy who was producing called when you go to break, like coming up next on our show, mm -hmm. blank. He called that the tease. 
Well, at ESPN, the tease was coming up on SportsCenter, you know, the da-na-na-da-na-na at the very beginning of the show. And that's what I called the tease. And what he was calling the tease were the bumps. Mm-hmm. That We called them the bumps. Right. And so he would say, tease to break in my ear. And I was like, what is this guy talking about, right? Like it takes time for you to speak the same language, to understand what's going on. How are we executing this halftime? This is the first one we've ever done. How long is each segment? How many segments are there? Do we take it directly from site? Do we toss back to site? Like all of these things. I'm not trying to bore you with minutia. I'm only (laughs) trying to tell you that the game on that one day, more so than any day that I've ever been part of in the history of my time, not just at this network, but but doing pregame and halftime stuff, ESPN too, uh, as well, the game was so secondary. And so it wasn't until it got to the fourth quarter and you're thinking, wow, Michigan could lose this game. And what would that mean? Sure. And so at that point, I think it really started to sink in a little bit. But I would say not until the very end of the day. So at the end of the day, when everything was over, when we had done our last show, which I don't know if it was called the final drive at that point, but whatever it was called, we had done that. Uh, a bunch of people, executives and stuff come in and say, we're going to go out. We're going to celebrate. We went to a place in Chicago, Carmines, and Jerry and Howard and I and, and you know Mark Silverman and some of the other uh, people involved. And... Had a, a great, great meal and talked about, wow, we launched a network today. And then at a certain point, you got to this notion of the game. And do we think this was the greatest upset in the history of college football? Where does it fall? It's certainly one of them. But what I think is fascinating is, in hindsight, it was probably a good thing that Michigan lost for our network. Right. And, and you would never say that. I mean, we, I think all of us were devastated that day. You know, it seemed so embarrassing for the Big Ten to have one of its preseason favorites, lose to an FCS team, even a great FCS team. But in hindsight, because of the distribution issues that you were talking about, you know, part of the rhetoric against BTN that was being used by the cable companies was, well, there aren't going to be any games worth watching. And so that got shot down really quickly with that game. And, and so in hindsight, it probably was a really good thing for us. And I think we started to understand that in the aftermath of that game as people were asking for footage. And you know, one of the things you look for as a new network is the ability to show other networks footage. And they, there's a reciprocity. They'll show yours. You, you, know, they, you agree to let them show your footage and they'll let you, that you show their footage. We didn't have a lot of those agreements in place from what I understand from Mark. We got them in place very quickly. You know, things right. like that were really important early on and, and that game had a lot to do with it. Right, and you've touched on a lot of them so far, but can you maybe expand on some of the hurdles you guys had to overcome? Just being a network that was sort of visionary at the time that had more than its share of skeptics, just those operational hurdles of getting that off the ground and elevating the brand and getting you guys in front of viewers, essentially, because, you know, first year in, not that many Big Ten fans were really able to see the games. Yeah, I think one of the things that was really interesting was where, in that 10-year period, I had more people come up to me when I was on the road and reference BTN than reference SportsCenter. You know, the first couple years, it was like, hey, you're the guy on SportsCenter. Well, no, (laughs) you know, I used to be, but, uh, and, and then... And then people start to know, you. hey, Dave, you know, BTN, I love you guys, whatever. And when did that happen? I mean, to me, that was like 2009, right, was when it really maybe started totally resonating, mm-hmm. 2010 in there. So it is, it is an uphill battle, no doubt about it. And uh, I give a ton of credit 
obviously to Mark Silverman, to Commissioner Delaney, um, you know, to Commissioner Delaney for kind of being the visionary to understand that there was the potential for it, for Mark to execute through a really hard time. And, and it was challenging when there was a lot of, there were, were a lot of negative things said about the network and, you know, even by people who were uh, affiliated with the schools. I mean, one of our highest profile coaches called it a PR nightmare. Mm-hmm. So that was tough. But uh, I, as, as far as kind of like the, you know, those hurdles, I think, were present more for them than for me. I, I think that Mark in particular did such a great job of insulating us from that battle. And he just kept saying, go out and do a really good show and make sure your content is compelling. And that way people will want to get the network, make this a network that people want to get, that people are talking about, people have it, say it's good, all that kind of stuff. And I thought that was really great advice. And I knew what was going on. It was impossible not to. There were editorials written about it. I'd go on radio shows, which I still do obviously a ton of to this day. And people would say, it's frustrating. I can't get it. So all that stuff was there. It was in your face. But but I think there was just this feeling of, I'm going to handle what what I can control. Control the controllables. For me, the controllables were doing a good show. And so that's what I tried to do. And that is very counter to my nature. I mean, I'm kind of a control freak. I'm a worrier. I kind of want everything to, all the ducks to be in a row. But at a certain point, you just have to say, I took this leap. It was a leap of faith. I believe in these people. And I'm just going to do the best job I can at, at what I'm doing. And, and hopefully it'll all work out. And it did end up working out. And, and it's all kind of came together, um, especially, you know, these uh, last seven or eight years, like you said, after those early days that, that might have been a struggle for the network at large. But um, I want to get into your personal background a little bit uh, and just your path to, to BTN from, you know, growing up and aspiring to be a, a sports broadcaster, I assume. First of all, we were both born in Champaign-Urbana, so yes. we'll always have that orange and blue blood. We'll share exactly. that forever. Yes, my father was a professor at Illinois when I was born, and so we lived there until I was about two and a half, so I don't remember much of it. In fact, I don't remember any of it. <laughs> Uh, weird if you did. If yes, age, yeah. it, it, it would be strange. Uh, yeah, my first memories are right after we moved. Um, but but yeah, we still have some really good family friends who are there and, and a deep connection to Illinois, no doubt, in our family. And you went to high school at GBN, Glenbrook North in the suburbs, went to Northwestern. Uh, where What kind of laid the foundation for your broadcasting career? And how did you ascend from, you know, whenever you started, whether it be high school or college, into your first uh, couple opportunities? Well, let's see. I always wanted to do sports casting. I mean, really, I think I was six or seven years old and I decided it was what I wanted to do. I think I was very realistic for a kid and I realized I probably, you know, if I wasn't the first guy picked at recess, (laughs) (laughs) that I probably wasn't going to be a professional athlete. And so then you say, okay, how am I going to figure out a way to be involved in it? And I was just fascinated with announcing. I mean, it was really growing up in Chicago, you know, we had Harry Carey and Jack Brickhouse, and we had some great announcers in Chicago that kind of made me that were celebrities. Not that there was a, not that that was kind of necessarily what appealed to me about it, but I mean, they were, they, they were so well known. And, and so you kind of understood their, their styles and and what made them unique and their appeal and so I really would I mean I would turn down the sound and I I would write out all the lineups and I'd call play by play I mean that was what I always saw myself doing 
What's interesting is that when I, so then in high school, we had actually a really great uh, TV radio setup. I mean, for the 1980s, it was really remarkable. We yeah. broadcast a lot of our high school games, uh, some on TV, some on radio. I got opportunities to do that. There was a sports casting class at wow. my high school, so I was able to take that. So I, I definitely got opportunities to do it. And then when I got to college, uh, essentially, my father told me I couldn't major in it. He basically said, you know, do something else and if you can get a liberal arts background and then if you decide this is what you want to do, we can cross that bridge with graduate school or, or whatever. But, but I think you need something to fall back on. Mm-hmm. And, and so I did. I was a history major. In college, I worked at the radio station, and I went to Northwestern. And at the time, Northwestern was so bad that uh, they would often be preempted. Their games would be. They didn't have. They did have a, a radio contract, which they didn't get until the early 1980s. I mean, within like five years of me getting there. I mean, for a while, the only station that covered them was the student radio station wow. for a Big Ten school. Wow. So, but then they did have a radio contract, but we would have exclusivity on a bunch of games. So it really was, I mean, we operated, we weren't paid or anything, but, but we certainly operated professionally. We carried ourselves like we were professionals. We had some incredibly talented people at the station, some of whom have gone on to do some really good things. And we were treated really well by the coaches. You know, Bill Foster in particular was the basketball coach who uh, just passed away recently. Really a wonderful, wonderful guy who had been at the very top of the profession, but always treated us with respect and knew all of our names. And that meant a lot to me. And and so I got opportunities. I mean, I called the basketball game at, at Cameron Indoor Stadium. You know, I was all over the Big Ten. I did a football game at Mikey Stadium at, at Army. I mean, we were really in some neat places in addition to all the great Big Ten venues. So uh, it whetted my appetite for it, but I, I did other things after college. I had a scholarship to go study abroad. After I graduated, I went and studied in Ireland. Uh, studied would be a term I'd use loosely. <laughs> uh, I, I hung out. Okay. Uh, it was called a Rotary Scholarship. It was a great, great deal, and, and I had a blast. I thought I wanted to go to law school. I was uh, applying while I was overseas. I got accepted, and I just kind of had a change of heart while I was there that I just felt like I was rushing into it, and, and I didn't know why I wanted to go. I, I didn't really have a compelling reason other than I had good grades. I had done really well in the LSAT, and that's what people with history majors did. And so I just said, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to, I deferred uh, an admission and came back home and looked for a job and ended up as a financial analyst at Chase Manhattan Bank. All right. And corporate I life. To, corporate life. Uh, I moved to New York and. Um, I always, I, people have said, well, when did you know that that wasn't the right fit for you? And, and my line is, I think I knew before I went to the restroom for the first time the first day, but I definitely knew by the lunch break. <laughs> like, I definitely knew by lunch wow. that I, I wasn't going to enjoy it. I just, I don't know, I just didn't like it. I, I really, um, it, it really reinforced the notion for me of, I, I just wasn't sure I was cut out for a corporate gig, at least not yet. I didn't want to do it. And so... Uh, I had applied to journalism school. Halfway through that year, I applied to journalism school. I got accepted there. Uh, But I had a friend who was doing small market TV, and I talked to him, a friend from high school. And he said, don't don't go to journalism school. Like, come down here and, uh, you know, you're going to pay a lot of money. $30,000 $30,000 a year or whatever it was at that time for a job that will pay you literally twelve, mm-hmm. And I, I think you could come down here and, and 
learn on the fly, you know, kind of what you need to learn. Sure. And so I went down, I, I interviewed for a job. Um, there really wasn't an opening per se. The news director, I'll never forget this, had like 200 tapes in his office and basically said, why should I hire you instead right. of all these people with these journalism backgrounds? And I'm not sure why he did. I mean, I must have talked to a fairly good game and he essentially told me the next opening is yours. And so I went back to New York and kept working on Wall Street. And then maybe two months later, someone left the station. He called me and said, do you want to come down? So I went down to Sherman, Texas. It's about an hour north of Dallas and started working there. I was there for two years. Went from there to the Quad Cities on the Illinois-Iowa yep. border. Was there for a year and, and then went to ESPN. It's quite the transition from, you know, New York City to Sherman, Sherman Texas. Texas yes. And then Quad Cities, Illinois. That's it's pretty remarkable. So how do you upon arrival at ESPN, work your way up from being that person to the guy that is sought after to help launch Big Ten Network? Uh, so I was hired at ESPN when they launched ESPN News. I was one of the original All ESPN right. News hires. There were, I think, 12 or 13 of us. Of that group, the only ones that are still there are Mike Greenberg and John Butchigross, I believe. And I think everyone else has left. So, you know, kind of unbeknownst to me, Alex, I mean, I think we were in a competition from day one. I just wasn't really looking at it that way because I had been the weekend anchor at the worst station in the 88th market in the country. Mm -hmm. And I went from there to being an ESPN anchor. Right. And so to me, I felt like, well, I've already kind of hit the home run here. But we were all kind of being measured against one another. And... Uh, it went well for me. I mean, I would say I know I, I uh, hosted my first Sports Center uh, the weekend, the Saturday of the Final Four of 1997. So I got there November of 1996 is when we launched ESPN News. So, you know, within seven months, it's I was hosting rise, Sports yeah. Center. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and and really, you know, for the next eleven years that I was there, I mean, I had some really good assignments. I I got to host a couple of World Cups. Uh, before they sent the team on the road, we mm -hmm. did them from a studio in Bristol. But I mean, that was a high-profile deal. Uh, you know, I got to host it some Final Fours and uh, college football championship games, and so I don't know. I mean, you just kind of you get different assignments. You you position yourself in a certain way. You become friendly with with producers who might have some sway in where you end up. And, and you just hope that when you have a really good show that somebody's watching. And, and I think I was just really fortunate to kind of work my way up through that world. So when you were approached to be the, the lead studio guy at BTN, what was attractive to you about that opportunity, both professionally and personally? Well, to be really blunt about it, and I have told Mark Silverman this, so he's certainly aware of it. The person who was the executive producer at the time has since left. Um, I truthfully, when I first heard from them, really wasn't that interested. But uh, I was in a contract negotiation, frankly, mm -hmm. and um, you kind of get to a certain point where you feel like, all right, well, maybe I ought to see what else is out there, if for nothing else than to kind of, you know, move your contract negotiation right. along. And so I came in really with very little intention. I said to my wife, I just think, I need to go hear what they have to say. and um, But, you know, the, the idea was not for us to move. The idea was for us to stay. Uh, and I went and I met with Leon Schweier, who was great. And 
I didn't really understand. The reason I wasn't interested to begin with was because I had no concept of what it was going to be. I just didn't get it. Sure. I didn't understand that it was going to be a 24-7, 365 day a year network. I didn't understand all the ancillary program that was programming that was going to be going on around it. I just thought it was a different place to put these games. I didn't get what it was going to be and the scope and the scale of it. And so as we're having lunch, I mean, it was really crazy that I kind of went from this thought of, you know, I'm not really here necessarily to to take this job to, wow, this sounds really cool. Yeah. This is totally in my wheelhouse. I love college sports. I love the Big Ten. This actually might be really appealing to me. And so I remember leaving and I had my flight was in a few hours. And so I was kind of hanging around on Michigan Avenue. I went off somewhere private, like into a department store and off to the side. I call my wife and I said, um, she said, how'd it go? It's like, it was great. I think I might actually be interested in this job. And I'll never forget her response. She said, that was not the plan. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, I kind of explained to her what it was going to be and that they wanted to have me back out uh, in a week or so to meet with, with Mark Silverman and Commissioner Delaney. And we kind of said, all right, well, let's see what that, what that entails. And so I came back and met with them. And then I was just totally floored. Sure. I mean, honestly, it was, it was far better. Um, I, I felt like Mark and I just shared a vision right away of what it could be. I really liked him. I mean, from the get-go, just thought the world of him. Uh, the commissioner was great, you know, really made it clear that, that they would love to have me. And and so, yeah, I mean, it was really strange that I, I really went out without a thought that this was necessarily going to be a move I was going to make. And then when they offered me the job, I just basically said yes. I mean, I didn't even really try to negotiate with... ESPN or anything. I just said, this This is right for me. And and not to get too far into things, but my father literally passed away as all this was going on. Yeah. Uh, and so that was that was really hard. It was brutal, in fact. Um, I won't get into all the details, but he had been sick for quite a while. But it also kind of reinforced to me that somehow it felt like maybe it was meant to be. My parents lived in Chicago. Sure. And um, so kind of this notion that we can be home and, and be near my mom. So all that really... Coming full circle. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I, I think there was a lot of stuff that went into it, but, but it's just funny, kind of where life takes you, and, and it's such a perfect job. And I think I realized really from the very beginning that it was the perfect opportunity for me, and it just made so much sense. Absolutely. And I wanted to. This is, you know, about this is very subjective here, but I just want to get your sense of the, the Bristol versus working in a market like Chicago, that whole dynamic, because obviously those are two very different cities. Bristol's the mecca for, you know, for sports media. Um, but I've got a sense from friends and colleagues who have been at ESPN that now came over to BTN that, you know, just like they're parts of the culture that's different yeah. at, at ESPN. And I've only known BTN, um, just being there about a year now. So I'm curious, like, to get your opinion on the uh, the workplace environment just between those two places and the similarities and differences in, in culture there. Well, it is very different. I mean, ESPN is a huge corporate monolith. Uh, I will just say this. I had a great experience there. So I was not one of those people who left with a negative, you know, the old, the best view of Bristol's in the rearview mirror, <laughs> the yeah. Keith Olbermann line. And uh, I wasn't one of those people at all. I loved it, which is part of why we were really thinking sure. that we would leave. Um, you know, Bristol itself is, you know, I mean, it, it's fine, but we love the suburbs of Hartford. It's a really great place to raise a family. It's really a beautiful place, an easygoing place. We made some wonderful friends there. 
Uh, I liked, I loved the vibe of the newsroom there. I loved feeling like you were in the epicenter of really big stories and that when something happened in sports that that people were going to look to ESPN for coverage of it. And so I, I loved that and I, I flourished on it. Um, it was very competitive and I'm a competitive person and you were kind of constantly worried about, well, where do you fit in and, you know, what, who's getting what? And, and I didn't enjoy that at all. Right. Uh, and, and I, I found that to be a, a challenging work environment um, that I, I felt like was unhealthy at times for me, for kind of how I'm built. Um, so, and then as far as BTN, I mean, BTN is just so much more collegial, I would say, you know, not collegiate, mm-hmm. uh, but which is that too, <laughs> but, but just kind of this, especially just kind of feeling like having been there from the beginning and, you know, these are people you've kind of been through, I hate to use the term battles because it, it belittles, you know, real battles. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you've been through challenging situations with. And and so there is that connection with them um, that, that you, you do feel you have much more of a personal stake in it. I mean, I always felt like I was a cog in the wheel at ESPN, a cog in a great wheel. And I was thrilled to be there and I loved it. And again, I left on great, great terms. I mean, I was one of the few people who when it was announced I was leaving they didn't just take me off the air. They let me go back, and I, I was on it. Once we kind of, after my father's funeral and everything, I, I went back, and I worked for a month. I mean, I was on the air doing the same, you know, the profile of the assignments didn't change or anything. They were great. So I had nothing but good feelings, but, you know, maybe because of what had gone on for me personally and everything, I, I just felt like it was a great time to make a, a break. And BTN has been, I think I had really high hopes for it, but I think it succeeded them. It's been everything I could have hoped for and more. I love working for the people that I work for. Uh, I love interacting with the fan bases and, and kind of being in a college sports environment. I loved college. And so I think that, that there's that connection, that that time in your life I think is really formative and that you're kind of still around it a little bit. And I just love college sports. I love the the passion and the pageantry of college sports. There's There's something about it that just has always resonated with me from a very young age. Yeah, you mentioned that you left there on no hard feelings at all, and that's everyone I've talked to that's worked there. Same with them. Like they, you know, there was no bashing of it, but they just said it was. You know, there's it, there's differences, and I, I'm always curious to hear. It's different with on air people yeah, sometimes. Yeah, the on air yeah, people sometimes leave. Uh, it 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 can be a little ugly. right, right. Um, so shifting a little more uh, to the last ten years of, of your career and um, being present for all of this that's gone on, what what are some of the initiatives that BTN has undertaken um, kind of originally, like whether that be some of their original programming, like we've had the Journey, which is which I really enjoy, or something like BTN Tailgate. What, what are some of those initiatives that you've been most proud of over the last decade? Wow, I've been proud of a lot of stuff. The Journey is an awesome show. Yeah, uh, it is probably the show on the network. Well, one of a few shows on the network that I have literally no contribution to whatsoever. So that might explain why it's as good as it is. <laughs> uh, but I mean, that whole crew is so good. Bill Friedman, someone I knew from ESPN. Right. Same with Julian Darnell. Uh, they're fabulous. Uh, we've had so many good people who have worked on that show, and and I'm really really proud of of that. And again, having literally zero to do with it. I am proud of Tailgate. I, I think that that was something that we, if you were to ask me where were we lacking as a network, I would say that was an area that we were lacking in terms of being out on campus, being close to the fans, kind of touching them in a literal and metaphoric right. sort of way, you know, mm-hmm. um, that, that you're right there. 
to write in their world. I, I think we were missing that. And it became apparent to me because I do play-by-play for basketball. I'd be out at doing a game and people come up and they always want to say hi and they want to talk about the network. And it's obvious the network means a lot to them. And that's really cool, Alex. Yeah. Like this notion of how significant the network is in the lives of these Big Ten fans. And, and I that kind of gets lost if you're just in Chicago the whole time. And so clearly we're not the first people to come up with the idea of taking a studio <laughs> show on the road. And, and I would never claim that we are. And, and we had done, we had dabbled in it before. But I think that was a really important step for the network. But I'm just proud of how we have evolved. I'm, I'm proud of how we cover stories. I'm proud of the the ability that we have to kind of speak our minds about what's going on. I, I think it is sometimes a challenging line to walk, but I think that we've walked it really well. And I've never felt like we were constrained in what we could say or the opinions that we could voice. And um, so I just, it you know, there's a lot. I mean, I'm proud of what we've become. I'm proud of the network. I'm proud to say that I work there and, and of our programming. So how has your role, do you think, adapted over the years, with the rise of everything that's come up I and mean, we've had social media blow up in, in this time pretty much in that exact same window almost uh, the expansion of the conference has, has brought a bunch of, of new um, things into the fold so how's your role adapted alongside and parallel to all those changes we've seen during that time social media I was I don't know if I was a late adopter uh, I, I I'm not a, I love Twitter as a news source and I use it all the time I tweet the most by far all year when I'm on the tour because it's so built in and you have this access and fans are so curious. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there are other times of the year where I'll go long stretches of time without being on Twitter that much. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I just have never really felt like I'm great at it. Uh, I, I don't really enjoy kind of stirring it up. That's just not who I am. And that's not to say that the only people who are good on Twitter are people who stir it up. But I'm just kind of... I love it as a source of information for me, and I like it to uh, convey information to fans. Hey, this is when we're going to be on. This is where we are, that kind of thing. Um, But that's probably been, you know, that's probably been the biggest challenge for me. Um, How has that changed my role? You know, again, I've tried to, for instance, like on the tour now, we do so much more stuff that's for social media only. You know, we used to really think about how are we, what are we doing for the show that day that's on television? And then when you understand how much people consume on Facebook and on Twitter and, and you understand that that is where a lot of fans maybe touch BTN and get BTN content, once that was drum home, I'm all in. I mean, I'm happy to do whatever there is that needs to be done for social media, the social media component of BTN. I'm just not necessarily a great initiator of it. I don't really think... In that way, I think like some other, you know, I don't. I'm not Spice Adams, right? I mean, <laughs> right. I look at him. And, you mean you don't want to go out there and dance on the, on the field with the uh, He's amazing, <laughs> right? But I mean, he just really gets it on mm-hmm. such a fundamental level, and uh, I understand how that is appealing to people. I certainly see it with my own kids and the amount of time that they spend on social media. Uh, but uh, but as far as kind of being an initiator of it, you know, I'm I'm much happier to let. The new pe- new media people like you initiated, and and for me to, to come along for the ride. How about a play by play? Did you always do play by play for BTN? Because I know yeah. you do a lot of basketball games. Um, was that something that you've done since the beginning? Yeah, so I was one of the few people at ESPN who was able to do both. Okay. And I think the year that I left, I may have done close to thirty basketball games, uh, including you know championship week and then the women's tournament. Uh, I did play by play for, so you get a lot of games in a short period of time. But I did. 
one to two games a week throughout basketball season, uh, probably for the last six years or so I was there and really enjoyed it. And again, I mean, kind of when you say, well, I never thought I'd leave. Part of the reason I didn't think I'd leave was because where else were you going to get a setup like that? Yeah. You got to do studio and play by play. And one of the things that Leon made clear to me in that first lunch where all of a sudden I was like, wow, this is this could be really cool, was he said, hey, we really admire your play by play work and we'd like for you to do that too. Oh, okay. Uh, so, because I do enjoy it, especially for basketball, because we don't have the opportunity that we have for football to go out and see the teams in the preseason. Sure. That's my opportunity to talk to coaches and to do kind of what we do on the tour to do it during basketball season, which is to see every team and feel like I know their storylines. And I always make a point to do at least one game for every team in basketball during the course of the year so that by the time the Big Ten tournament comes around, I can say, hey, I've had this conversation with John Beeline, and here's what he thinks about X player or whatever it would be. Yeah, just being out here uh, kind of hammers that point home, you know, like, you can only get so much being in the studio in Chicago. You know, get, being on the ground has been very beneficial to me as well, just to, you know, see how these places operate, meet the, interact with the, the, the departments, the SIDs, and get on the same page and get ready for the season. So it's been it's been great. Um, a little more uh, before we wrap up here. In the midst of everything that uh, you've been doing at BTN, you wrote a, a, a book uh, called The Opening Kickoff, The Tumultuous Birth of a Football Nation which I have not read, but I have to get around to because I like being at Illinois was really a, a part of our curriculum, um, looking into how rocky the history of college football was with like during Red Grange's time with, um, you know, how dangerous it was. You had, I think President Roosevelt weighed in um, yeah. on, on how dangerous the game was and how it was basically, you know, it was portrayed in a lot of negative lights. Um, so my question is for you regarding that book. What was the original inspiration for it, and how did you balance it with your full-time job? The original inspiration was in the summer of 2010, I was reading through the ESPN College Football Encyclopedia, kind of getting ready for the season, which is this just massive, massive book. And I was reading the little excerpts about each Big Ten team, and there was one paragraph in the part about Wisconsin, which talked about this guy, Pat O'Day, who I knew about. I had seen his name in a program when I was a kid, at a game, and it uh, listed the longest kicks of all time. It was at a Northwestern game. It was the longest kicks all time against Northwestern, and Pat O'Day had the longest one, and it kind of said parenthetically, drop kick. And I remember asking my dad about it, and he told me what a drop kick was, and that Pat O'Day name was always in my mind. And then fast forward, I'm reading about Pat O'Day, and it turns out it said in this one paragraph that he disappeared under mysterious circumstances and then reappeared to much national acclaim about 15 years later. I was like, well, that is a really weird story. I wonder what this, I wonder what that, right. what's going on there. Yeah. And so I started reading about him. I literally just Googled him. And then you, I followed some links there. And this guy had this bizarre life. And he was an unbelievable player in the, in the early years of college football. And so I started tracing his story. And I kind of thought, well, maybe this would be an interesting story for BTN. And and then the more I started reading about it, I thought, well, this would be like, I might like to write a story. I might like to write an article about this guy, or maybe I'll write a book about him. <laughs> and, and so I started down that path. And then uh, through a series of circumstances where I won't get too far afield on, uh, it became apparent to me after trying to sell his biography uh, somewhat unsuccessfully that the, the feedback I kept getting was it's hard to sell a biography on someone people haven't heard of, no matter how amazing his story is. But you're touching on all these periphery things that were going on in college football that are really interesting. And what if you broadened, 
What if you painted on a bigger canvas and told the story of, of early college football? And one of the things about O'Day was he actually did an incredibly good job of disappearing. And so I became <laughs> more acutely aware of the fact that I might not be able to fill in some of the blanks on his story right. anyway. And so I, I, with, I, I changed book agents and, you know, we started looking for different publishers. And, you know, long story short, I ended up kind of deciding that I wanted to write a book that used him as a mechanism to tell this bigger story of the early days of college football and the amazing similarities between college football then and now both on the positive aspect of the way that it was kind of a PR mechanism for universities and a way in which they got alumni interested and something that excited fans and that the media wrote about and, and that was a spectacle in, in so many ways. But also the negative stuff that all, you know, you talked about President Roosevelt intervening. You know, there was a huge injury crisis. There were questions about the marriage of academics and athletics and how that could work. There were amateurism crises and all this Sounds stuff. Familiar, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right, exactly. And all this stuff overlapped with O'Day. Like all of these things happened to O'Day. And so basically what I did was I would show the big picture of what was going on in college football, the you know, the amateurism issue, and I'd show kind of wh- where that was playing out. And then I would then do a chapter on kind of him and, and where that affected him and use it as a way to tell his story. So... Yeah, it was amazing uh, how I got the time to do it. I certainly have some downtime in the summers, and, and that was the original intent. But what I didn't understand about publishing, when I first was pitching it, I was like, well, I'm going to do it over the course of four or five summers. That's not how it works. So when a publisher buys a book, they say, we need it in 16 months. Mm-hmm. And so when I sold it, like, wow, you know, I've really boxed myself into right. a corner here. So uh, how did I do it? I mean, I stayed really late. It was hard. I mean, it was a ton of research like all kinds of primary source material. You're reading through newspapers from the 1890s, and I was in archives, and I mean, it was very, very hard. Like, I'm not going to lie. It was a real challenge, and there were points where I certainly thought to myself, why in the world did I get myself into this? (laughs) I I have a full-time job. I've got three kids. I've got a great family. I don't need this. But I did find it unendingly interesting. I love the process of writing it, again, even though it does get daunting and you've got deadlines and all those things. And I just loved the story. I was transfixed by it. I just couldn't, I couldn't believe all of this had gone on and that someone who loved history as much as I did and loved college football as much as I did didn't understand these parallels and, and, and that the story hadn't been told more broadly. I mean, it really is the first narrative, true narrative, on the early history of the game. I mean, there have been more kind of, you know, textbooky type stories, you know, where, where it's not, you're trying to actually kind of spin a story through it. Sure. Um, but going back to the earliest origins is the first one. And, you know, it was cool. I mean, it made the New York Times bestseller list. I mean, that was really cool. That it's was very bad. gratifying. <laughs> yeah, that was that was neat. Um, you know, certainly got some publicity around it. Uh, but, but most of all, I think it just uh, kind of along the lines of starting BTN, it's something where you can say, this is mine. And this was this was something that I did. And even more so, obviously, BTN, there were so many people who contributed to it. And I was just a part of it. Here, it was just me. And so there is something of going into a bookstore or a library and seeing it that even to this day, I still, if I'm in a bookstore, I look for it. Because <laughs> if it's they cool. don't have it, you got to speak to the manager. Right, <laughs> right exactly. Yeah, it is. Uh, that, that part of it's really neat. Yeah, it could be some good, uh, good bus tour reading. Maybe you can uh, hook me up with a copy. There you and, go. You know, yeah. West Leg's coming up. For the up. West Leg, I can get you. All right. Absolutely, you've got it. All right, so uh, last question, Dave, before we wrap up. Um, obviously, BTN doesn't exist in a vacuum. We, it's going to go on, hopefully, as long as 
you know, as long as college sports exists. And uh, how do you think, I want to get your thoughts on the future of the network. Um, just with, you know, the landscape of college sports is changing, of TV is changing. There's cord cutters, contract rights will come up eventually. All these new digital endeavor, endeavors that we hear about uh, from, you know, both our corporate overlords and the, uh, you know, just the industry in general. It's all kind of overwhelming, but how do you see, I guess, the next five or ten years playing out, and what are you uh, most excited for, would you say? Well, I'm excited to see how it grows. I think I'm excited about where the industry's going. I think there's trepidation with everyone who's involved in cable television and cable sports uh, in terms of there is there are a lot of changes that you outlined. Uh, again, I come back to our leadership. I think it's really good. They've spent a ton of time figuring out how to position us best so that given the changes that are going on in the industry that we're well positioned. You know, again, I mean, there's so many really brilliant management people at BTN and, and that's it, it's been such a great part of why I think we've succeeded because of how well they positioned us. So I have no doubt that we'll be in a good spot wherever it is. You know, Commissioner Delaney just announced that the agreement has been extended through 2032. So that's a nice chunk of time, 15 more years. I'd love to be a part of it for as long as they want me to be a part of it and, and kind of you know see where it goes. It, it has been such a magical ride. And I don't know where it's going. I think anyone who tells you that they know where any industry is going is lying, right? I mean, yeah. I, I think that it's, you know, the world is such a, a changing and evolving place and there's so much in terms of how people are getting their information that's changed in the 10 years that we've been on the air. And I have to believe that that pace will continue or even accelerate in the ensuing 10 years. So I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but I'm anxious to see it. Uh, as, as far as what I'm excited about, I'm excited to see us grow. And you know, the different ways that we can reach fans. I think it's great what you're doing here. You know, I, I listened to a couple of them earlier this summer and, and reached out to you and told you you're doing a great job because I think that this is like this is valuable for Big Ten fans. This is this is another way to get information. And as one who is a I'm a late comer to podcasts, but I've really started listening to them as I, I run. I'm a runner. And they're great. It's a great way to get information. But, you know, I did podcasts at ESPN in like 2005, and I even know what it was. <laughs> they just said, as part of the College Game Day radio show, will you go over and record a podcast with Bino Cook or Mel or whatever? Sure. And I said, sure, yeah, okay. I, what is, I don't know what that is, but I went and did it, and then I never heard from it again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I even know where it went. Uh, so, I, I mean... You know, again, this technology has been around for a while, but I think people are really starting to understand the impact that it can have. And who knows what the next thing that's going to have that impact will be. But I'm, I'm anxious to see how it relates to our network and our fans. All right. Likewise, Dave, thanks so much for taking the time. It's been a pleasure uh, talking to you. And uh, let's finish the bus tour strong, all right? All right. Sounds good, Alex. All right. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks again to Dave for joining me. And thanks to everyone out there for listening. Um, I really do share that sense of pride he has uh, with what the people here have been able to pull off. And uh, even though I've been here just a fraction of the time he's been, he's been here, I do want to stress that everything, uh, including this podcast, wouldn't be possible without the passion and, and the engagement and the following from all the fans out there. So thanks again to everyone for listening and for following as passionately as you do. And with that, uh, I'll give a shout out to Wes White, as always, for producing the show. Thanks again to Dave for sitting down with me, and we'll talk to you next time on the Take 10 Podcast.